Uh, like Antley said, we're going to be um, working through the book of Colossians. I'm doing Colossians 1 and some background um, stuff on it. And Tom's going to be doing Colossians uh, 2 and Colossians 3. And Keith Snow is going to you know, come on the scene and give his first little dealio here at River City Church to do Colossians 4. So um, I would encourage you, what would be a great thing for you to do is to dust off the old Bible this week and travel along with us through Colossians. It'd be great. There's a lot of stuff in Colossians that I will not cover, and I know Tom and Keith won't cover. We're going to kind of pick some key passages, and we're going to work through those particular passages. So for you to go through those, and you can post stuff on the city and say, hey, look what I found. I was reading this, and this is what God was saying to me. And and we can have discussions about Colossians all month. I think it will be fun to do that. Um, It's funny. uh, Colossians is one of my favorite favorite books in the Bible. It really, I mean, all, all of God's Word is good, but there's definitely, there's things that you um, grab hold of that you just love. And Colossians is one of those things that it had to sink in for me, especially the, the passage that we're going to be looking at today in 15 through 20, verses 15 through 20. Um, but it had to sink in for me about how great Jesus is, how much He controls, how much He owns, how much He is the center of it all, as Paul Buckley sings to us in his song, Right? He's the center of it all. He is everything. And it's one of those passages that's really, really uh, special to me. And as I was thinking about it, I, I totally bagged some of the stuff that I did last night. I showed a clip because always, there's always that pressure to be the funny guy at River City Church. And I had a funny, funny, funny clip, but I'm not going to show it. I'm like, oh, show the clip. But it, it doesn't work for today. It really doesn't. But I was thinking last night as I went home about when I was a kid, I was thinking about my father. My father was here last night. I really wish I'd have done this last night in some ways. I don't regret because I know God's in control. But he was here, and I wish he could hear this. But I was thinking about my dad. And uh, just he is one of the people that he is a planner. I don't know. Uh, you know the difference between somebody that's a planner and not a planner. But he is such a planner. He went to the Citadel. You know, everything is, you know, hospital corners. Everything is squared away in the way that it's supposed to be. I mean, he's like, you know, borderline OCD, but he can make fun of it so you don't really think that he's OCD. Does that make sense? You know, that's his cover-up. But if you pull out his calendar, I kid you not, you can flip to it, or at least you did when he was working. He's retired, kind of semi-retired now. Um, but you pull out his calendar, and you look like the October of next year, and you could see what suit, what tie, what shoes he was going to wear that day to work. And I kid you not, that is no joke. When he goes to the grocery store, he doesn't buy one stick of deodorant. He buys several, even if he's got several, just to get them into the rotation of, you know, when we're going to change out the deodorant, when we're going to do this. He's got routines on top of routines. You would never know it and think he's one of those people that jiggles the doorknob 25 times before they walk through it. But I know because I'm his kid and I grew up with OCD man. But the benefit of that was vacations. I remember vacations being unbelievable, especially when I was younger. I remember my dad always had everything under control. He, ha- he held it all together. And as a kid, I knew that because my dad, you know, all the details, my dad had them all. Every single one of them. He didn't let any of them fall through the cracks. And it was easy for me to get in the car on, on you know, it's, it's, it was always hectic getting in the car and getting ready for vacation and getting all the kids in the car, getting all the luggage on the, you know, the hamburger on the roof and all that. Getting all that done is difficult. But once we got in the car, my dad was kind of a surprise guy. So we didn't really know exactly what the place was like that we were going. He wouldn't tell us. He loved to, you know, surprise us with all the details that he had worked out. So, and me and my brother totally trusted him because he had proven time and time again that with a limited budget, we would have awesome vacations two or three times a year. So all we would do was we would crawl back into the back seat of the car and we'd go to sleep. 
And we knew that it was going to be awesome when we arrived. We had no idea where we were going. We didn't know what the end game was. But we knew when we got there, it was going to be awesome. But something interesting happens as you get older. You know, you start to get 10 or 12. You begin to ask questions like, Dad, where are we going? You know, where, where are we heading? Is this going to be fun? Is this going to be, is this going to be, a, can I bring my buddy Larry with me? Because Larry's fun and I like Larry. Can I bring Larry on vacation with me? Or is there going to be, is there going to be, uh, is there going to be girls there? Because that's an important thing to me when I'm 13, 14, 15. It's starting to get a little more important. And you begin to pull your trust back from your, from your dad, who's got it all together, you thought. But, you know, as you get older, you, you see things kind of falter along the way with your parents. And you begin to draw things back. You begin to take them back and say, ah, I don't know. I, I kind of, I want to put my trust here. I want to put my trust here. Or I want to put my trust somewhere else. I want to start asking a whole lot of questions. And when we read the book of Colossians, you know, when I think about it, or when I thought about it last night really for the first time, that picture came to me because what Paul's trying to do, before I give you a little background, what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to react. The, the pastor of the Colossian church said there was a little, there's a little bit of a problem. My church isn't fully trusting in Jesus anymore, and it's not real obvious. The church is, is a pretty good church. I love them. They're a great church. The gospel's changed them from inside out. But something's happened along the way, and they've kind of deviated from that. And that's where Colossians comes. And we're going to talk today specifically about verse 17, which talks about holding it all together. Holding it all together. And I can't think of how many times I've said to my kids to hold it all together. Or I've said to, to people that are asking me for advice, which is it's terrible. You just hold it together. Just get it together. Your kid's about to cry, you know, about something stupid, and his lips starting to poke out. And you're in public. And you're like, just hold it together. Just get it all together. And when I read verse 17, I, I really think about that. I'm like, do we really believe that Jesus is holding it all together? And we're going we're gonna to dig into that pretty deep. Let me just give you a little bit of background on, on Colossians. Colossians was written by Paul. What we, what, we, uh, what we think, I mean, theologians will make ex- extreme statements, but what they think is it was written around 60 AD when Paul was in prison. And Paul was originally a Pharisee who killed Christians, who dramatically became a Christian on the road to Damascus. He met Jesus, and Jesus healed him. And ever since that point, he was running around all over the place as an unbelievable missionary, planting churches and bringing the gospel. And he got arrested for it and stuck in a prison in Rome. And what we believe is that's where he wrote it. And we believe Epaphras, who's the pastor of Colossians, well, we know that Epaphras was with him in prison because we read it in Philemon. I think it's like 123 or something in Philemon. It says that Epaphras, my faithful friend, is here with me in prison. So we know that Epaphras was there. So what we think is Epaphras was kind of crying on Paul's shoulder saying, my church is jacked up. I need some help. And the Colossian letter that we read here is a, is a uh, response to that. And Colossia, if you were to find it on a map, just to give you all the, the fact information before we dig into um, verses 15 through 20, um, is South Central Turkey. That's kind of where um, Colossia is. And we know that um, Paul did not plant this particular church. He may not have even visited the church, but possibly he did because it was on the road of many of his uh, travels. And what I find interesting about the way that Paul responded to Epaphras' call, you know, Epaphras is, you know, crying on Paul's shoulder, supposedly in prison, and saying, you know, my church has kind of deviated from what they once believed. They've let some of the local things that they've always believed, you know, some of the, the, the rules and regulations, which we even talked about today, some of the legalism that was part of the Jewish law or part of some of the things that they did in that particular town had found its way in. So it became like a Jesus is good, but let's add a little bit to it because we're, we're moving a little bit further away and we're not trusting as much as we used to and kind of tacking things on. 
And I don't even know if they, they knew what they, were, what they were doing. It was just kind of drifting in. That's what the enemy does. Just as we get older as kids, we don't ride in the backseat of the car anymore and just trust. We begin to ask questions and say, hey, can Larry come with me? And that's what the Colossian church was doing. They were kind of adding things to the deal. And Epaphras was like, hey, you know, I've got this church, and they're good. They're doing great, but they've got this issue. So Paul, being a good minister and pastor, he writes this unbelievable letter. And I love the way that he writes it. If you go back and if you read this week, like I've told you to, and I know you will, if you read the other passage, like the beginning passages that kind of tee, tee this off, Paul does a great thing. He does what a lot of good pastors do. He kind of buys his way in. You know, we're supposed to, to, to speak to people with truth and love, right? Grace and truth, those kind of things. Love's got to be in the center of that. And Paul comes in the beginning. He's, he's, moving a, he's doing a corrective action with the Colossian church because they've kind of added, they're doing a Jesus plus whatever type deal in their church. It's not all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus and other stuff. Or they're trying to fit Jesus into their worldview. But Paul doesn't come right off the cuff and, and start screaming at them and say, you guys need to straighten up. You guys need to, you know, do this. You know, this is how you need to operate. He first starts out by telling them what a great job they're doing as a church. He says, you guys are doing amazing. I hear the gospel's been changing you inside out like it's doing in the rest of the world. And you've got this faithful pastor. He's really cool. His name's Epaphras. I dig him. You should give him a raise. And they, they, he kind of comes in with love in the beginning and tells them all the good things that they're doing. He says, we're praying for you. We're praying for you. And he has this thanksgiving and prayer that he often tees off letters with. And then he launches into this, these verses, 15 through 20. And it, it, what I didn't know, which seems like everybody else knows but me, because I'm, I'm a new student to the Word. I mean, I've always studied the Bible, but to really dig into Scripture, I, I find things as I read what other people um, have found out. But there's kind of a deviation when you get to verse 15 from the way Paul normally writes. And what people believe is 15 through 20 is actually a song. It's a hymn that was written about Jesus. And I think that's fascinating that early on, people were already cracking off songs about Jesus. And not only that, that Paul was using a song to, as a corrective action to get his people, the church, refocused on Jesus and Jesus alone, as Jesus is everything. Because we know how song moves us. I mean, River City Church, I mean, we definitely know that. And I was looking through the lyrics of songs a couple of nights ago, and it's amazing that when you, when you listen to songs, like you put your iPod on and you listen to songs, how Christ-centered a lot of them are, how they lean us back to Jesus in a way that just saying the words may not do, but when we see them structured in a hymn or a song, they're so deep and they're so rich. You know, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. I mean, those words, when we read them on the screen and when we sing them together as a church, I mean... The place erupts here, not because we're emotionally driven, but because we begin to believe it with a spiritual belief. And Paul's doing the same thing here in 15 through 20. And I find that fascinating. New to me, new little nugget that he's preaching a hymn right in the middle of his, uh, his letter. All right, so let's walk through Colossians a little bit. If you've got your Bible with you, um, turn to Colossians 1, and we are starting in verse 15. If you don't have a Bible, we got them in the bookstore. You can buy them really, really cheap. And I bet if you tap Jody on the shoulder and say, I have no cash today. Can I have a Bible? She would absolutely give you one. So here we go. Starting in 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And we look at, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. And I tried to be really cool and kind of break the, the verse apart and look at it and think, okay, 
what, what does he mean by the invisible God? Well, I looked it up, and it was like God is invisible. I mean, there was no hidden meaning there. I was like, dang. But what I did realize is that um, as you read through the passage in Scripture, what Paul's trying to say is that he, you know, in the, in the Old Testament, we didn't see God. We saw representations of him. We saw, you know, miracles that he did. We saw fire from heaven. When we read about it, we see all these crazy things in the Old Testament. But we didn't, there was no real actual seeing of God. I mean, Moses wasn't even actually able to see God. He only got to see God's back. So we, we have no expression until Jesus Flesh and blood. He is the image of the invisible God. He comes on the scene and he can sweat like we can sweat. He can bleed like we can bleed. He can be tempted like we are tempted. So in every way, he was like we are. And Hebrews says he could relate to us in every way, right? So this is what this particular thing means. is Jesus is, is, is on the scene and he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. And I find this interesting because I look at firstborn and I'm thinking, firstborn? I mean, that kind of tease off this idea of, of like a birth order, you know, and I, and I know that, you know, if you've ever had certain people come to your front door and talk to you about other religions or, you know, some things that we would consider a cult, they would say, hey, you know, the firstborn means that Jesus is the son of God, but, but he's not God because he's a created being. He was, you know, he's born. He's a created being. God created Jesus and that's great. We think he's really cool, but we don't think he's God. But I did a little word study on firstborn and I did find something. It was amazing. If you look and you relate the Hebrew and the Greek and you see what word they're actually using for firstborn, it's the same word that we see in the Old Testament that's used several times. In one particular time, and you can look it up, in Psalm 89, I think it's verse 27, David is referred to as the firstborn. And if you know anything about David, he was a, he was a son of Jesse who had tons of sons, and he wasn't even close to the firstborn. Not even close. But what, what, what I found out that meant is that just that he's the one that inherits it all. He's the one that gets it all. He's the one that receives it all. It's all his. That's what firstborn means there in 15. So let's move on to 16. 16, for, for by him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. That's a big chunk of scripture, but it's awesome because Paul's, now he's kind of bringing the corrective action. He's kind of trying to let them know that everything that you were leaning on, all the things that you're tacking on to Jesus to make you feel better, all the things that you've, you've ceased to trust Jesus for everything and you're kind of adding your rules and regulations back in, you're adding your mysticism back in, you're, you're, you're calling Oprah up for advice, you're look, reading a secret for advice or whatever it is. Um, anything that you've added to it, he owns it all. He created Everything, everything that you're leaning on, whether it's spiritual, whether it's physical, he is the center of it. He's the one that created it, and he's the one that owns it, whether it's dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and they're for him. Everything is for him. It should point to him. And we move on to 17. I'm going to breeze by this because I'm going to, I'm going to bounce back to it. But in him, uh, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's what we're going to, we're going to, we're going to talk about for a few minutes. Um, but in him, all things hold together. Who's holding everything together? He is. Okay, in 18, it says he is the head of the church, or he is the head of the body of the church, first half. That just means Jesus is the ultimate church leader. I know we, we think that Antley is, but you know what Jesus really is. There's tons of church leaders, and it would be a shame if we weren't following Jesus. And I'd love to be a part of a church that is. Okay, the second half of that is he's the beginning, the firstborn, from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And that is a chunk of just confusing scripture. What does that mean? That, 
that he is the, uh, the beginning. Okay, that, that makes sense. He was before everything. He is the firstborn. Okay, we already unpacked that, right? From the dead. What does that mean? He's the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. All preeminent means is he's great. He's great. So, but what does this firstborn from the dead mean? And I did a lot of study because I definitely didn't understand it. And I looked, and the best thing that I, I came up with, and I really like this, um, to break this down, is Jesus defeated death so that nothing ever held or will ever hold him down. He defeated death so that nothing ever held him or will ever hold him down. And what I, what I, as, I, as I read what scholars um, teach about this passage in Scripture, it's just saying that Jesus is the only one that's defeated death. Other people have died and been risen from the dead. We know Lazarus was risen from the dead. We see that in the New Testament. We know that people went up to heaven and never died. But Jesus is the only one. You know, Lazarus eventually died again, but Jesus didn't. And the people that went up to heaven that never died, they never died and defeated death. But Jesus did. He is the one that defeated death. And then it won't hold him down and will never hold him down. All right, here we go. 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this isn't the only time, but Paul's just, he's re-communicating the gospel. He's saying he's the one that fixes it all. He owns it all. It's all his. It's all for him. He is God. He was around when the, when the world was created. And not only that, when things fell apart, Jesus is the one that puts it back together. He's the one that reconciles everything. He's the one that will reconcile this broken earth once and for all. So let's jump back to 17 real quick. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, I, I recently, uh, last weekend, went to my 20-year reunion. Yes, I know, it's hard to believe that I'm that old, but I am. Um, and it, I loved going. I, I'm a people watcher in general. I like to, to watch people and then talk about them with other people later. So I'm kidding. But I do. I, I like to watch people. I do. And I, it's interesting, at the 10-year reunion, everybody kind of thinks they're cool and, and everybody really wants to be cool. They show up with their, you know, their orange wife who's been in the tanning booth too long and everybody's you know, trying to look good and they've got a new hairdo. they got sweet clothes that they'd never wear and... Um, you know, people drive up in the Hummer that they rented so that everybody thinks that they made the first million. And um, everybody's kind of, kind of got that going on. But in the 20-year, in the it's a little bit different. Everybody's a little bit more relaxed, and uh, they're just happy that everybody's alive. Um, and everybody's cool. But I did notice one thing um, at my reunion. It seemed like, and even with me, you know, as you begin to t- re-engage in conversations with people, you begin to see that everybody's got this mentality of that they've got it all together. You know, what's going on? Well, I've gone through a few bumps in the road, but right now I'm holding it all together. I've got it all together. You know, I, I've been through a divorce, but now I'm holding it all together. I got my kids and that's good. I'm not living the life that I used to live. You know, I've, I've lost everything, but I, everything's good now and I've got it all together and everybody's smiling and happy. You know, people are asking me what I'm doing. I'm like planting a church and I got it all together. I know what I'm doing. And, you know, I had tons of people show up for community group, which is some of that's true, but a lot of it was, you know, me going, oh my gosh, I'm about to die. I don't know what I'm doing as a church leader. I have no idea what's going on. But the thing that we put out there is that we've got it all together, that we're holding it all together. And we come in with this, just this weight into the reunion because we want people to think that we're somebody. And we're worried that people will see through that and know that we don't have it all together and that we're not holding it all together. And my wife, 
asked me a question. You know, we were, me and Beth were talking, and she said, who did you enjoy talking to, mo- to the most at the reunion? I said, I loved hanging out with my friends. I had a great time talking to them, and if any of them are listening to it, I had a fantastic time with you guys. But there was one particular girl that I enjoyed talking to. She wasn't the most popular girl in high school, um, but I began to talk, just engage in a short conversation with her, and I just began to be fascinated by her story because she began to tell me, Everything. I mean, just raw and honest, like what she had been through. She said, you know, I've been through this. And I mean, stuff that you and I would die if this had happened to us. I mean, it's just bad stuff. One after the other, all these things that had happened to her. And she was just saying, you know, God has rescued me. You know, I'm, I still don't have it all together. My life is still jacked up. I've still got issues and problems. But I know that he has got it all together, and I don't. And I realized when I was talking to Beth, I was like, I think that's why I enjoy talking to her so much because there was this raw honesty of just releasing. She had just released everything and said, you know what, I don't have to be anybody. It's a 20-year reunion. I'm not going to, you know, I'm just going to be honest and tell you what my life's been like. And I'm going to tell you exactly where rescue has come from. So when we read 17, that he's before all things and in him all things hold together. I think for us, we come in here and we, we do that. I do that. We try to put on this air that we've got everything together, that we can, we've got everything under control. And we, we, we know in our heads that Jesus is the answer. I mean, all of us would say, yeah, Jesus is the answer. Jesus got it. Jesus, but what happens to me who, you know, it's, it's my job to, to tell you about Jesus. When I'm forgetting, I know that, that some of you are forgetting. We're all in the same plane, the same playing field. We have life that hits us with things. And when life hits us with things, we begin to grasp and grab. And we think, if I could just have a big stack of cash because I can't pay my mortgage or I've got, you know, I've got, I've got, I need money. When I can do that, then I'll get back to the business of trusting Jesus. Or if I could be in this particular relationship, then I could hold it all together. And I could, I could carry it then. Or if I could have this one little thing, if I could add this one little thing to it, then I've got it all together. I could hold it all together. And we get to the 17 and we read it and we gloss over it and we say, He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. He is the one that holds it together. We don't. But something up here tells me that, do I always believe that? Because I think it boils down to belief. Do we really believe that He's holding it all together? That if we let things fall through the cracks, that He's not surprised by that. He's not shocked when things happen in our lives and He's like, Oh, Dad Gummit, Mac Mitchell again? Dad I'm getting you because he texted me in the middle of the service. He's trying to get my phone to ring, so I make an idiot of myself. But, sorry, distracting, and I got to hurry. Um, holding all things together. We do. We try to hold all things together. We try to put on this air. We try to grasp and grab for things, and we don't believe in our head. Or we don't believe in our heart. We believe in our head that he holds all things together, but it's just saying words. And Paul's coming along with a hymn, with a song to say, he is everything, he is great, he's preeminent. He's the one that controls it all. There's nothing else. It's Jesus plus zero is everything, right? You've heard that before. There's nothing that you can add to him. If you, if you had everything and you subtracted it all and you still had Jesus, you've still got everything, right? Everything could fall away. Everything could drop off the, the face of the earth for you. And if you've got Jesus, you've got everything. That's what this verse says. And we just have to begin to believe it. We have to let it sink in beyond our head, but into our heart. 
And I don't know exactly what that is for you and how that works or how that begins to sink in. But he is holding all things together. And as I was preparing this talk, I just remembered this story. I was in Costa Rica a couple years ago, and some of you may have, may have heard this if you were on this trip with me. But my father-in-law, who I've talked about before, he's a Marine, and he almost shot me. Um, but not only that, he's really, he's a scientist. He's really smart. He's a biologist. He knows a lot about nature. Um, so that makes him even more intimidating because he's smart and he's, he, he wields guns. But he's, he is, I say, I say things about him. He is one of the, the godliest men I know. And I go to him for advice, you know, just like Epaphras goes to Paul. I, I mean, I go to Duke Hammond because he is, um, a rock for me, but he, he, told this story about this bird. It's called the lesser golden plover. And it absolutely blew me away. And a lot of times, for me, I, have to, I look at things in nature. And Scripture tells us to. You can look at things in nature and you can see that God is holding all things together. And there's been a ton of sermons preached about that. And he did this, this talk about the lesser golden plover. And it's this bird. And you've probably seen a plover before. It, it cruises around in the ocean. Uh, and you see it kind of walk into the ocean and kind of peck a little bit. And then it walks back. It looks like it doesn't want to get its feet wet. You know what I'm talking about? So this is a particular bird that, that has this crazy migration path. I mean, absolutely crazy. It starts out in Alaska and on the, the frozen tundra in Alaska. And in the spring, when it's got enough room to move around and grass, it's, it's eating berries and twigs and sticks. And they have babies there in the frozen tundra and the babies. That's all they eat. They never fly more than 100 feet and they're there for six months. And the babies don't fly at all. They're just kind of cruising around and getting food, right? So one day, the lesser golden plover... The mom and the dad take flight, and then the babies, they, they fly. They eat six months of just cruising around, never eating more than sticks and berries and whatever else is on the ground in Alaska. They start flying with mom and dad with a, th- a thousand other plovers, and they fly 2,800 miles to the island of Hawaii. 2,800 miles. Never flown before, and all of a sudden, poof, we're up in the air, and... 50 miles an hour. It takes them two days, two days to get to the islands of Hawaii. And if they were just one degree, the islands of Hawaii are tiny in relation to a map. When you see it on the map, they're way overstated. If they were just one degree off in their flight to Hawaii, just one degree, birds that have never been there before, mind you, following mom and dad, one degree off, they would miss the, they would never see the islands of Hawaii. And they go through storms, they go through, you know, hurricanes, whatever else is out in the Pacific Ocean. And they make it there every single time. They've got the brain the size of a BB. (laughs) And then they get to the islands of Hawaii. I mean, it would be like, hello, father. It would be like you and me sitting on our duff for six months, eating bonbons and watching TV and getting up to run across the United States. It would be. It'd be, it's, I think if you calculate, it's like 107 marathons. And then six months later, after they cruise around in the sand, picking stuff out, you know, on the beach, poof, back up in the air, right back to Alaska to have some more babies and do it all over again. And when I see things, there's, and there's millions of examples like this in nature over and over and over again. You could find them everywhere of how God is holding all things together. He is. He is. If you look at the detail in which the golden plover lives its life, don't believe for a second 
that he doesn't have your life and that he's holding it all together. That if, you, if things, some of you just need to let go of the details of your life for a day because you're trying to hold it so tightly and say, you know what, it's going to be okay. Jesus knows what's going on. I mean, he's got that little eight-ounce bird under control. He has to because ornithologists have no idea how that happens. They're like, he doesn't have enough calories in his body. His brain's not big enough to find his way one degree this way or this way. We don't know how it happens. The smartest scientists in the world have no idea. And we worry about oil in the Gulf. I mean, we should. It's a, it's a problem. But do you think that God's like up there going, dadgummit, they need to take care of that freaking oil. You don't think he has a plan? If we read scripture, we, we have to believe that he's got it all. He's controlling it all. He's holding it all. But yet, we're like a teenager. We don't ride in the back seat anymore. We don't lay down. We don't go to sleep trusting him. I just remember the joy of getting in the back seat of that car and not knowing and knowing that it was going to be amazing. But at some point, we lose that. We lose that faith. And we begin to add things to it. We begin to grasp for things that aren't Jesus. And this morning, he's singing us a song in 15 through 20 of Colossians and saying, I've got it all. I've got everything in my hands. Stop worrying about it. Release it and let it go. I'm Jesus. I am great, preeminent, king of the universe. Let's pray.